been 100 days of observations for James Webb, and we have been reporting a little obsessively about all of the new science, all of the new pictures. But the reality is that there's a ton of science that we haven't seen yet, that we're still in this intermediate stage where we're waiting for all of the science results to come out. But it's a living, breathing telescope now, not just an idea in some engineer's desk. And so I wanted to sit down and talk with one of the most influential people on the JWST project, and that's Lee Feinberg. He has been the optical telescope element manager for JWST for its entire lifetime, so about 20 years. He helped decide what the mirrors would be made of, what kind of instrumentation would go in, and has been overseeing the construction and now its deployment and the operations. So we talk about what, like, what it's like to run the telescope. What happened with that micrometeorite impact? What are they going to try to do to minimize the chances of that in the future? How are other instruments doing? And that's about half the interview. But you can see why Lee does this job, because he thinks big. And so we talk about what comes after JWST. Will there be on-orbit servicing for future missions? Uh, what about modular on-orbit construction? What will Louvoir look like? And then we think about the telescope that comes after Louvoir, bigger, faster, more powerful. And then it gets weird. And we think about the possibility of quantum telescopes and how next generation telescopes could allow us to see other Earths at megapixel resolution. Uh, it's a fascinating conversation and uh, there are going to be ideas in there that I had never heard before. I am now obsessed about and I think you will be too. So enjoy this incredible conversation with Lee Feinberg, how Webb's doing 100 days later, and then what comes next in large space telescopes. Hi, Lee. It's good to see you again. Yeah, you too. So last time we talked, I think it was after the launch, but before the data was starting to come in. Now we just crossed 100 days <laughs> of, of web observations. How is it going? You know, uh, it's, it's remarkably well is really the very simple answer remarkably well uh you know in all the years that we were developing jwst i mean it, it, it seemed like we just always had things we were working and if anything we're surprised at how little there is for the engineers to do right now and the science is just churning away 24 7 so it's it's wonderful really wonderful so let's let's talk a bit about just like how productive this instrument is compared to other missions out there. Like you're out at the at the Lagrange point. You're not having to orbit around the Earth. You're not having to change targets. How does it feel like in tasking targets and accumulating the science and sending it back to Earth compared to other missions that we might be familiar with? Yeah, I mean. I don't think a lot of people appreciate that uh, Hubble, you know, spent half its time looking at the Earth because as it orbits around in low Earth orbit, and so really they have a complicated planning thing of having to constantly only be able to get roughly 40, 45 minutes worth of science data, you know, per orbit. 
Um, so right away, JWST doesn't doesn't have that being at L2. I mean, we do have to consider, you know, as we orbit around the sun, what's in our field of regard, if you will. And so we do have to plan targets based on time of year, but but we're running 24 seven. Um, and really the limitation is just, you know, when you do a slew, there's some settling involved. And so the question is efficiency to start taking science from slew to slew. And, um, but, but things have been, you know, as efficient as we could have hoped this early on, which is why uh, we're just taking, you know, we're doing many things a day, many observations, typically they're a couple hours long each, and sometimes there's, you know, four or five, six of these things. Sometimes there's one huge thing that's 18 hours long or something, but nonstop, nonstop. But, but to give people context, like, like if you're doing an 18 hour observation of some target, how would that compare to what trying to do something equivalent on Hubble might be? Yeah, I mean, well, so right away you're you're losing half the time on Hubble. So, um, you know, you could you could just double the amount of. I mean, that's why like five years of JWST time is almost like ten years of Hubble time in that sense. But also, um, it's a vastly more capable instrument. Yeah. Right. So th you know, that's just in terms of the time. But yeah. then, yeah, I mean, the time it takes to get equal signal and noise, you know, kind of scales with signal and noise. And especially on the signal side, the collecting area is so much larger, it's like seven times larger. So you can build up signal a lot faster. And if you're background limited, you win by even more than the factor seven because it's signal over noise and noise is, goes with the square root. So, um, so we can do things a lot more efficiently. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean when we do a deep field that we're going to do deep fields that are shorter. Our first deep field, and this is what really, really got me excited, I have to admit, was, was that first, you know, it, it was actually the data that was released July 11th in the White House, you know, the, the mm -hmm. first deep field. If you remember that image, that was 12 hours, okay? It was six filters. Each filter was two hours, okay? But that was the deepest deep field that's ever been taken. Whereas Hubble, when it did its ultra deep fields and stuff, some of those went on for almost a month. Yeah. Um, and you know, so and here we are deeper, <laughs> and we did it in twelve hours. And and there are and since then, you know, there have been some of these uh, programs that were GTO programs. So like the principal investigator of the NIRCAM team and the near spec teams have this one program that they're doing this sky deep field survey. And, you know, one day I'm looking and they're spending 18 hours that day, then 18 hours the next day, you know, compared to we did just, we just, we just like, we just did enough to show people capabilities. And even, and even from that, we're doing follow-up spectroscopy. So. Right. I mean, we keep writing stories on universe today about the most distant galaxy that's been found. And a lot of the observations that are being made as part of other surveys. And they're like, oh, and by the way, this appears to be the farthest galaxy that we've ever seen. Nobody has really put their back into it yet to go and like, let's find the perfect gravitational lens. Let's spend yeah. days examining this region. Let's find the most redshifted object we can put our sensors on. It's just been like, it's just been breaking records. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> Well, and remember, By accident. I think it was something like 
there's somewhere between four and 500 hours of the first year of this early release science. So the thing that you saw, the deep field was part of the early release science and it was part of the, that actually even was part of the very, the, the initial ERO data actually, but there's also the stuff that's come out publicly that's early release science. But then there's the GTO programs, which is what the principal investigators get. And some of those are really spending much longer times. That's reward for, you know, some of the scientists spending 20 years on this program is they're kind of, but that data has not been, you know, they get one year proprietary. Now that I think we'll start hearing from it a lot sooner, but um, so the deepest stuff, I think we haven't really seen yet. Um, so let's yeah. talk about that for a second, right? Because I mean, I make this, this, I explain this as often as I can and as much as I can, that there's really sort of two kinds of data that are being gathered. There are, there are surveys and fairly large collaborations where the information is just being published immediately. I think of like Cosmos Web and other things like that. But then there are proprietary time that have been assigned to astronomers to, they get a year, but to give them time to do their work and publish their paper and, and it won't necessarily take a year, but they have a year. What is the breakdown between the stuff that is coming out right away that I mean, we've been reporting tons and tons of stuff, but that's all just the stuff that's public. There's still a, yes. a, a tsunami of science. So what is the breakdown really yeah. between those two, do you think? Well, and, you know, this first year is pretty complicated, right? Because there was the EROs, the early release stuff that we released on July 12th. There's the early release science, which is director discretionary time. Now, that's usually about 10% of per year is director discretionary. but uh, the director, Ken Sembach at the time, decided that they were going to focus it on doing what's called the ERSs, and they actually got these proposals for them. And that was where I was saying it's somewhere between like four and 500 hours of this first year. It's just that ERS. And that's stuff that instantly, when it comes down, the data is available, and that's what you've been seeing predominantly. Then there's the GTO data, which, go, which is the stuff that... Um, the astronomers who, like, for example, the principal investigator teams who built the science instruments, they get some, they have teams that get what they call guarantee time, and that gets the one-year proprietary. Yeah. And then there's guest observer. And the guest observer ultimately makes up the large majority of what we do. But in the in this very first year, because we have, you know, also the GTO time, it's a lot more you know, split and it, it, what I've been, I don't have the exact statistics, but I kind of pay attention day by day. And what I'm seeing now is, you know, we're, we're, you know, most of the early release science is, you know, it's finishing up. A lot of it was intended to feed into cycle two, the cycle two calls coming out in a couple of weeks. Hmm. So that's one of the reasons they kind of front loaded the early release science. And now we're more into the, the GTO and GEO, and it's kind of split between the two. Um, there were some really big GTO programs, and a lot of the GTO program is front-loaded in the first couple of years because, you know, the scientists who worked on it, they kind of get it. And then, you know, ultimately, that will, they'll, they'll fade down because it's, it's based on hours that they get. But um, so we're sort of in that transition point more and more towards general observer, which are people who wrote proposals, Usually it's teams of people, but there's a principal investigator got selected through a very competitive process and they get one year. And so 
So that so you know all of this is making it interesting as to how data is getting released in this first year because people get one year if their data is being taken out you may not in theory they wouldn't have to release public results for a year now they often do before that yeah um and and the other thing is that the early release science that we did for example in july um looking at the deep field they they want to follow remember they found all these possible you know, really early galaxies, really redshifted, possibly some of the earliest galaxies, but they want to follow up with spectroscopy. A lot of that spectroscopy is going to be taken in December or January. So like, and, the, and part of that is the cycle of having to wait six months before the target becomes available again. So, you know, so there's this real mix of stuff. So you'll, you'll, be, you'll be seeing stuff throughout the year, but I think after about a year, a little more than a year, when GTO and GO stuff start getting through their one year proprietary period, there's going to be a ramp up of science results as opposed to cool looking images and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's the, that's the, interesting. Like, like I've been getting a lot of feedback from my viewers and they're, and they're like, we love the pictures, but what are the ways that the JWST is changing our understanding of the universe, starting to answer some of these, these big questions and that is the kind of thing, I guess, that we have to wait for that process for the scientists to finish their observations, to write their papers, to get them peer reviewed, to get them published in journals. Yes. And so the major breakthroughs in our understanding of the early universe really haven't come yet. Mm. But but even but what is coming out is evidence that it will be able to do it. Um and there are cases like they just released. I think the, fir the first time I saw a follow up with near the near near infrared spectrometers. They use a, they have a prism mode that does spectroscopy. They followed up this galaxy like Z of eleven galaxy like that they found that was lensed, and just two days ago released the results of it. You know, or a couple days ago. Sorry, and you know, so we are starting to get spectra of these early galaxies. It, it was like the first real spectra that I saw. Um, so we're we're just we're it, it's too early yeah, right yeah. now. But I but I think it's possible in you know early next year we're start we're gonna start getting scientific results. And and when that happens, you'll know because um if you remember back to Hubble, especially when we launched SM1 and SM2, the first servicing missions, what NASA does when there's something really scientifically important is they have a press conference with the astronomers and the media come and they answer questions. And and you're not seeing a whole lot of that yet. No, in part no, because because a lot of what we're getting is stuff that demonstrates that we can see the first objects, and we have this. What was neat? What was neat about the one I was just referring to is it was what they call a low luminosity galaxy. It wasn't the oldest galaxy. I think it was like maybe closer to 500 million years after the Big Bang, but it was low luminosity. So it was saying in prism mode and near spec, you have the signal noise to see low luminosity. And now we want to go find the ones that were the very first ones, you know, like you were saying. And so when we combine these now, when we find them in these bigger surveys that are being done as we speak with like the GTO programs, we know we've proven that we have the ability then to follow up and to look at the chemical composition and how things evolve, potentially see these early, you know, large black holes that the black holes. I mean, I'm not an astronomer, but, you know, the more and more I read about these you know, supermassive black holes early in the universe and understanding how they form. I think that stuff is 
when that stuff starts coming out, you know, there's going to be press conference after press conference because it's going to be super interesting. Um, yeah, and- there was a paper that I just saw today that somebody was starting to think about ways to reevaluate how the building blocks of galaxies came together what role dark matter played the supermassive black holes how these all these pieces came together it sounds like the story is a lot more complicated than anyone was ever expecting which is like it always is but it's it's amazing and hopefully we'll actually see these detailed in you know in in specifics and start to remove a lot of that ambiguity yeah and you know one thing that I think I've kind of been thinking about recently, I don't know how if you share this a lot with your readers is or the viewers is the degree to which JWST is really going to un- help us understand the evolution of the periodic table. Um, hmm. Because, you know, we always talk about the first stars and galaxies, but, you know, if you just look at, you know, take the, the early release up, you know, the ERO data where we did the spectra and you know, the very first stars have hydrogen and helium, but then there's these heavier elements that form. And then you get supernovas and then you get even heavier elements, you know? And so that's really the periodic table going from, you know, at the point of the primordial, you know, sort of big bang area of nothing to when we first can see light, the universe was very simple. It was hydrogen and helium, you know, reionization period. And somehow, and so we're not only filling in like sort of stars and galaxies, but we're filling in how did atoms come to be? And and we're also seeing in other stuff, these nebula and stuff have, you know, more details of how certain molecules formed. And so it's not even just the periodic table, but it's even, you know, molecules. And, and it, it's something that we used to talk about with JWST, sort of the evolution of from start to, to all the way up to life, you know, but in the early universe, it's really more the it's it's more the periodic table. And it really it was really noticeable when those results came out in July and you looked at the spectra and you can see how few, you know, atomic species there were in some of these really early objects. You know, huh. so I think that's pretty cool, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I think about I mean, the thing that I'm always really excited about is the potential for web to get a glimpse of those first stars, perhaps through gravitational lensing or something, because we still don't even know were they were they limited to the mass that large stars are today? Or could they get tens of 1000s of times the mass of the sun and explode like supernova, the likes of which we can't even comprehend what's out there and then the follow on of of the atoms that were created kind of depends on on what those first stars, how they lived and died. Yeah. And we have, we have and, none left today. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, it's, these are really, really hard measurements. I mean, it's why we designed JWST, but I, I you know, I really don't think people appreciate because it it's, it's, uh, it's, it's almost painful for me. You know, I, I have all these people telling me how they can, they can build a space telescope cheaper, you know, it's a, it's, there's much easier ways to build a space telescope. And it's like, they really don't appreciate, you know, most people just see the unfolding and they think that was the hard part of JWST was the unfolding. But I got to tell you from the telescope perspective, unfolding was about the easiest thing we did. I mean, you know, it's basically some mechanisms and latches, right? And we've been doing mechanisms and latches at NASA for 30 or 40 years, maybe more, 50 years. But you know, we were cooling 
a mirror to 50 Kelvin that has to be stable to nanometers. And then we have to have really low contamination because we don't have a baffle because we had to cool it. And so we can't, you know, for example, on the, on the secondary mirror, our budget for particle accumulation is, was like a few tenths of a percent area coverage. Um, our pointing and control systems, one milli arc second, seven times better than Hubble, you know, like, and and we needed at least seven milli arc, but it's like, it's performing even better than we expected, but that required closing the loop with the guider, you know, at, we do these things that, you know, we're, we're measuring things at multiple Hertz and closing the loop at a Hertz, all of that at 50 Kelvin, you know? So like, for example, the fine steering has these little actuators that are voice coils, they have to work at 50 Kelvin and be stable and not drift. The level of complexity to get all of that working and then we get the results and we look at how good it's performing from an imaging point of view you know our requirement was to be diffraction limited at two microns which is a, a it's a criteria of image quality it says how good is the telescope so hubble's problem was that it was it wasn't good image quality we're almost a factor or two better than that and that is significant scientifically because it means that when we have for example a galaxy or a star they actually we get more energy into the slit where we're that we're spreading the light from. So JBST is is incredibly complicated, but it's working better than we expected. And that means the science that we're getting is better because for the same amount of time, we're getting a lot more signal. You see, I mean, you're getting a lot more signal and noise. Yeah, I mean, you're starting to approach the limits defined by the laws of physics themselves, as opposed to engineering, which is exciting. Yes. And yes. and I think that's exactly I mean, we want to see pretty pictures. But astronomers want to see spectra. Yes. And that's, you know, that's the difference. And, and, I think. and the spectra is that for the deep universe stuff, right? What was designed to do. Yeah, you go in with these filters. The filters are wide band. You know, there's a lot of different wavelengths. You know, they're, they're wide bands so they get pretty good signal noise. But you really want to measure spectra. And whether it's early universe or transits, transits is another case where, you know, the planet only passes in front of the star for four hours, six hours, whatever it is. And so you only have a limited amount of time. So you want to get the highest signal noise at all these different wavelengths. And you want higher and higher spectral resolution to do finer and finer details. So it's a it's a very, you know, you want as much signal and as low a noise as possible. And so since we're getting more signal because the energy is tighter and you're getting more through and the throughput of everything is higher than we you know had uh, required in the system, we're getting better. We're getting better spectra than we, you know, more signal noise. Now, now in the future, I think what this means is we're going to be able to do more with it. In other words, for a given observation, it might take less time, and that could, that allows us to do more observations. But for this year, since it was already planned that we're going to do a certain observation for a certain amount of time, they're actually even getting higher signal noise in the measurements. And in some cases, that higher signal noise might be complicating things for them a little bit, to be honest with you, because, you know, things might saturate and all that kind of stuff. So that's, you know, the funny thing about it is it's working so well, it's actually making them adapt. Are you getting, are you going to get those diffraction spikes on your, on your spectra? <laughs> well, the good, the good news about diffraction spikes is you only get them from the really, really bright stuff. So well, that, that's what I'm that, saying. Yeah. yeah. It's such a powerful but, signal of the atmosphere but, of a planet that it's yeah. that you're getting these, these spikes but, appear spikes appear and or more importantly at the center of these bright objects uh you might saturate the detector and so you don't get something that looks like a star you get something that just turns black because it just you, you hit the rail essentially 
And and in fact, the very first stars that we did at the end of Wayfront Sensing Control, the star saturated. And it was like, you know, here we want to show this beautiful picture, but we don't want a little black splotch in the little where we saturate it. And it was because it was just, we're getting so much energy in the core, you know. So, you know, a pilot puts in a request for a new aircraft or, or it's asked for their feedback on, a, on an aircraft. They provide a list of features that they'd like to see in the aircraft. The engineers build it and the pilot gets to sit in the aircraft and actually fly it for the first time practically compared to the spec that it is on paper and starts to learn the nuances and the way it behaves and the, the weird shakes and sounds that come from it. So what has it been like to pilot JWST for closing in on a year now compared to in your mind what it was going to be like to operate it? Uh, that's a great question. I mean, you know, it, it, it has evolved as the year went along uh, or, uh, you know, early on, you know, I don't think people appreciated uh, the level of complexity when we were first getting those first results. You know, we were we were, you know, you'd slew the telescope. This is a humongous telescope. You know, we've never had something this big and this flaw. And it's, you know, compared to like a Hubble. Hubble is this like stiff thing. It's, you know, it, it, you know, I kind of use like analogy of like, you know, it's like a, a, a truck or a school bus. You know, it's, right. it's just you're just turning this big yeah. thing. Yeah, it's a culvert it's, is sort yeah. of the way I think of it. Like a big yeah. steel culvert. Yeah. yeah. Whereas here is we have, you know, this huge floppy, you know, mirror and sun shields really floppy. So what, and then you have you know, how does the pointing system deal with that? You know, pointing, we call it pointing and control. And, you know, and so, and then we have the whole issue of the guiding system, closing the loop with the guider. And, you know, for the very first time in space, we had done these little experiments on the ground, but now you're doing it with real stars using catalogs that are imperfect because the catalogs that we generate of the sky and that tell us where stars that we want to point at to, close this loop you know they're developed from typically like ground telescopes and things that don't have the resolution or the so sometimes you have a double star so early on a lot of what we were dealing with was all those kinds of things real engineering aspects of having a humongous telescope with all the sensitivity kind of not you know catalogs that have limitations and so we were solving a lot of problems along those lines hmm. um so does it feel like I'm trying to feel like it feels like it it jumps back a bit like like I've you know when you move a telescope manually and you point it at some object and if the mount isn't really nice and smooth it has this little bit of a kickback so you so yes. you overcorrect and you're like yes. okay I want to get this object in the middle of the field of view so I overcorrect a little bit because I know how much it's going to want to kick back and then and so I and you just get comfortable and, and you this and, becomes second nature. And is it sort of is it a similar thing that you kind of know how it's going to behave as it wraps up its slew? Well, well, so this is the whole thing. I, and again, it's part of this complexity. I don't think people appreciate is, you know, we have the spacecraft down here with this large tower. Then you have the telescope and and we have isolation, you know, to you know, reduce vibrations from the spacecraft. But. You know, there's this whole engineering field of what we call controls and control algorithms that deal with all these things that try and make it so that when you point something, you don't overshoot. And, you know, even, uh, you know, people who build robots like, the, you know, these first robotics teams in high school, 
you know, one of the first things uh, the high school teams learn is that when you're when you have a mechanism that's deploying, there's there's a controller called a PID control, position integral differential, where you want that thing to to wind up just in the right place at the end and not overshoot or undershoot or do this. This is the yeah. worst thing. Yeah. Well, that's that's the not a very simple stiff, stiff thing that's doing this, right? You know, these you calibrate. There's these parameters that you calibrate. Now imagine something as complex as JVC with all these different dynamic modes and all these different stiffnesses. Now things have gone cold, so you have the uncertainties and the material properties of these temperatures. All of that hit us in the face within a week or two. Like, you know, we had a week to you know to do this alignment step, yet we all of that was hitting us in the face. Huh. And so like a big part of what was going on early in terms of understanding the system was that kind of stuff. You know, was and it goes all the way down to you point the spot this the spacecraft with star trackers and they have their own little engineering in intricacies and there's a couple of them, you know, and that forms a coordinate system and then you transform that and then you do controls. And so a lot of the early phase was that. Now fast forward, you know, to May, we're fully aligned, you know, then we're checking out stability. And by the way, stability is the thing that we will never stop investigating because you know, you always want to put the, the, the part of the telescope that never that no one talks about and and is actually the maybe the most important thing scientifically is how stable things are. Mm -hmm. And it's actually and that, you know, I a lot of times when I give talks, I explain to people the hardest part of building the telescope was the stability. And in our case, we actually have 18 segments that all have to be stable to nanometers as we slew around the sky dynamically, thermally. And so that's a really, really, so we, we're constantly evaluating that. So we went through a whole phase, maybe a month of just doing testing and calibration and saying, when we slew, how stable are things? Because if they're not stable, you know, and, and you start using them to do science, you know, you don't know whether the results you're getting are the results of the telescope or the results of the science. And by the way, it turns out the stability is phenomenal. So even though we're we're still looking at it, what we're really what we're doing is trying to push the performance for things like coronography, which really require a lot of stability. But um, I can. But that was that was the next phase. Yeah, I mean, I can Go sort ahead. of uh, wonder though, right? Like, have you learned how to again back to that pilot analogy? I mean. You're going to do a big slew. You want to go from this target over to that target. You know that the reaction wheels are going to kick in and it's going to bring the telescope over, but it's going to cause various strains and loads on the different trusses. The sun shield is, you know, going to ripple a little bit. And then even the mirrors, as the everything deforms a little bit, will they all come right back into their place? So have you built up sort of best practices and efficiencies on on how you know you look at it you look at a saloon you go oh god that's can we break that up can we it, yeah the the, the slew stuff's working really well um we got through that early and have and and it's not really you know you always you're always going after the low the, the thing that are most impacting you you know you kind of you kind of triage and so we got through this the this i mean so maybe there's a little bit to be gained in efficiency that we'll continue to improve on there. But um, but a lot of what I'll tell you, this is what's amazing is we got through things almost on schedule. There, there was so much behind the scene that we were doing and working nonstop to do that because there were lots of things that we had to understand and solve and test. And but we kept moving along. Um, 
and really along the way, we we kind of checked off each thing. I mean, the last thing which you probably heard about was micrometeoroids. That was the first thing which was really surprising to me mm-hmm. was that one. It was only just one micrometeoroid. I mean, we we were getting them along the way, and I sort of we had we had expected them. We had, turning out the environment is actually pretty close to what we expected. Um, but there was one that like you know deformed the mirror slightly and put a little thing in the mirror, and that one created a larger deformation we expect. And that was the one when you ask about understanding things. I've spent more I spent more time on that issue than any other issue. Really? Huh. Up until a couple of weeks ago, really, when I finally you know So so if I like if we were able to recover GWST, bring that mirror segment down, look at it in the lab, would it be obvious where that impact happened? Um it you know it, you probably would see on the surface a small, you know, place where there's some coating that's not there and possibly a hole. Uh, I think that part would be obvious, but that's not the part of it that, you know, I was focused on it, it and the team was focused on. The team was more focused on than locally the shape of the mirror. And the only, if you... Mm put it in a cryo chamber and you measured it with an interferometer, you would see that the shape over, you know, a patch, maybe, you know, yay big or something like a, like a, like about a foot across. Yeah. It was, I think a 150 millimeter radius, right? That, that amount, you could see it very, you know, you need an interferometer. It's small. Right. And, um, so, so you wouldn't see it by eye just looking at the mirror, but that's the part that we were really paying attention to. Um, so is it like because, ripples? Is it like, is it like, you know, is it like a dent in or is it more like, like it's kind of the, like the mirror is rippling a little outward from where the impact happened? Uh, well, locally, very locally, you could get what the, you know, what looks almost like a crater on the moon. So you might yeah. you get a little, it, it is a little hole and then it raises up and then that, but, but what the issue is that that then kind of comes down back to the surface that you started with. And that is a little bit of what we call a deformation, of, you know. So it looks, for the mirror's point of view, it kind of looks like what we call mid-spatial frequency ripple. It looks, but it's just one sort of waviness to it. And um, and again, it's 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 small, but the the challenge is, you know, for me, the, the first thing I was thinking about is, you know, well, how frequently will this happen? Because one was very, really, I I, th- I would argue. You would not be able to tell by looking at the images that it happened and it had almost zero impact on the science but if it happened once every three months for 20 years see it and the other thing is you know it's actually even more than 20 years and you know it's like at least 20 i think people have been talking to even be potentially past 25 years it's like really yeah i mean it's, huh you know, that's interesting you know, more than 25 yeah. years okay Potentially, I mean, you know, we've been quoting at least twenty years, yeah. but um, but uh, you know, we we've been conservative in how we you know do things, and Classic so NASA. Um, yeah, 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 right. And so, you know, so in my mind, it was like, you know, we had this thing that we don't know how frequently exactly because it was a little bigger than we expected. We don't have, we don't know how frequently it's going to happen, and then you couple in. The fact that we're going to last over twenty years—it's like you put all that together. Uh, what is what does that imply? And so that's why we were—that's why we were paying so much attention to it. But what we concluded, and what now having another four or five months have shown us, is that 
it was a very infrequent, you know, you actually do expect if you look and it was, you know, I hadn't looked at the statistical distribution of micrometeroids. Of course, we're 25 square meters, but over 25 square meters, you know, every year or two, you do expect one that's bigger statistically. It's like a power law. And it happened to have hit in the location that was one of the worst locations on hmm. the mirror in terms of how it affected the mirror. And that gets complicated and stuff that's hard to get into here. But um, there actually was a locational aspect to it that statistically was unlikely to happen on the next one. <laughs> so we got sort of doubly unlucky in a sense. I mean, it was surprisingly <laughs> big hitting the wrong part of the mirror. Yes, yes. And so when you put all that together and you feed forward, you feel a lot better about things. But even with all that, there is some ways we can mitigate, you know, to reduce the number. And that's what I, you know, the team that I was on, we were looking, we've been looking at and, as, you know, and, and one of the ways is you can plan your observations to face away from the ram direction where the energy is higher. You know, the, the relative velocity when it's, when a micrometer is coming at you is, is, is double, you know, relative velocity and that's quadruple in energy, right? Because it's, uh, kinetic energy. So. so I just want to understand that. So, <clears throat> I mean, is there a direction that the micrometeoroids are mostly coming from? No. Um, it turns out that these, you know, so there's different types of micrometeoroids, but the ones that we pay attention to are what are called sporadics. They're, they're very, well, let me say it differently. There is some directionality to where they come from. Um, but the real issue is that when you face the you know, if you think of JWST, we can either face in the RAM direction, which is the orbital velocity vector of the spacecraft, you know, as it goes around the sun. Right. You're either facing that way, that hemisphere, or you're facing away from the orbital velocity, which is what we call the wake direction. Right. So you can think of these two hemispheres. And the point is that when something hits you coming at you, it has twice the relative velocity. So even though it may be evenly spread in terms of statistics, it's going to be worse in this direction because it has twice the relative velocity, four times the energy. So it's so safe really to yeah. to look at objects in the wake, ideally. Yes. And so do you and think so, that will go into planning out, say, upcoming upcoming years worth of observations to try and cluster yep. things into the wake if possible? Yeah, I think if you pay attention to our cycle two call, you'll see, um, you know, we're still working our way through what the final thing will be. But the the way that one would handle this is as part of the call to say, to actually, you know, ha have the astronomers essentially propose to point away when you can. Now, there are some things you can't do that because they're time dependent and you want to be pointing in this the, direction. The dart but impact. It's, yeah, but it's a relatively small percentage. And so you can you can say, OK, those are fine. But when I can, if I have the choice, to find something this way or this way. And it's there's a six month difference, right? As you come around the sun, you could point, you know, in this direction or you come around, you point in the opposite direction. And so if you have a choice, why not do it uh, in the wake direction? And so that's, I think, uh, what, you know, that's kind of what we've been investigating. I mean, there are places that JWST can't point at. It can't point on the hemisphere that's pointed towards the sun and the earth and the moon. Yes. And it can't point directly perpendicular to them within a cone but yes. if you just wait every part of the sky comes into into play right yeah yeah exactly and so we always have a limited at any given moment we have a limited what's called field of regard 
because you can't point it at the sun. You can't point in, you can't point at sun or anti sun essentially. Right. Yeah. There's a there's a there's a field of regards like plus forty minus five degrees, and then there's a roll angle. We have constraint, but then in theory you can point ram direction or anti you know or wake direction with with those cones. And so what we're really talking about is for those two cones at any given point in time, whether you're pointing wake or ram. That that's the other aspect. And it's it's it you know in retrospect I think uh, that was the one thing I, you know you, you ask yourself is there anything we didn't think of as over the many years we worked in this thing, you know, we thought of micrometeoroids, we budgeted for them, but it, it's this very rare statistical high energy one. And relative to that question is like, you know, if you ask me on the telescope, you know, the thing I paid attention to in all those years, was there anything that we didn't think? And that was like the one thing I can point to and say, you know, I don't think anybody ever raised that combination of factors. Have have um, solutions come to mind since then? Have you sort of thought about ways that you could have given it more micrometeorite protection and I, still fit within no, the fairing and well, the weight not, constraints? No, not no. Um, you know, I think for JWST, we did we would we would not have changed anything. Um, you know, I, I mean, in theory, there's some stuff we could have done in the mirror mounting to maybe make us a little less susceptible. Um, but, you know, JWST's open architecture, the sun shield, is really driven by the need to cool the mirror. You know, we're cooling the mirror 30 to 55 Kelvin by using deep space, which is super cold, to, you know, radiatively cool it. And so, you know, you start putting a baffle around it, like the Roman Space Telescope has, and the Hubble have baffles, right? Well, for a warm telescope, baffles are fine. But when you're trying to cool something at 50 Kelvin, that baffle would be seeing the sun and it would warm up. Right. And how do you get something 50 Kelvin when you have a warm baffle? Yeah. So so I don't I don't think we have regrets. I don't think we missed something fundamentally there on a 50 Kelvin, six and a half meter telescope. Um, and I actually think, you know, when you look ahead, if you look if you looked at what the decadal recommended for the next two telescopes. One is IOUVR, which is, you know, mostly optical and UV with high contrast. Right, Louvoir, but web-sized. Right. Yeah, yeah, web-sized. And then there's a far infrared, also six-ish meter telescope after that. That far infrared one, I think the jury is out. They may probably still want to have a sun shield and use deep space to get within their active cooling because they want to get down to like 48 Kelvin. That's so they amazing. may well, yeah. they probably will stick with this architecture where, you know, or at least some element of it. Whereas for the IOUVR, I think, you know, we actually, and on the Louvoir concept, we were originally going to use a sunshade, which was really good thermally. But I think, you know, it's it's making us relook at the idea of using a baffle, um, which which is painful thermally, but buys you, it buys micrometeorite protection, um, which is why, you know, Hubble and, you know, these kind of it's it's partly why we weren't as sensitive to this whole thing is if you look at most of the telescopes that we've launched that are big, they're baffled. And so we are the first open telescope, you know, like of this ilk. And so that's in part why, you know, we had all these great review panels and brought in literally the world experts from all these different space telescopes and ground telescopes. And nobody raised this because it really hadn't come up on a previous program yeah. like this. Um, so the other issue that seems to have gone wrong is on the MIRI instrument, one of the modes was experiencing some additional friction. What's the status of that? 
Um, so there is a, um, you know, review board that has been looking into that. And at this point, I think they do have what they think is a root cause. Hmm. Um, and uh, I don't know, though, that they've, you know, I'm not exactly sure where they are in. And they and they have uh, a way that they think they can mitigate it. I, I think I can at least say those things. Right. Okay. All right. An approach to mitigating, but I don't think it's been fully, you know, announced and all that. And so, and I'm not the person, I'm not the true expert in all that. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. So I'm not, I'm not the right person to try and explain the details. But does um, it just but, mean like all the observations that were going to be used in that mode of Miri have just been pushed back until that all comes back online? They'll, they'll. Yeah. 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 They stopped. I think there's three different filters. Three different wheels, essentially, you know, filters and and ratings and prisms in Miri, and so this was only one of the three wheels. Yeah. So they still can do all the signs for the other two wheels. For this one, the medium, the MRS medium res, they were um, holding off using it. You know, when they when this happened, and so um, so you know, the plan is to, based on now understanding it better, get back to the point that they can start using it, and you know, I. I don't want to get ahead of them and you know exactly where we are but i i will say i'm you know feeling more and more optimistic about that so it. so now that you are you know you've mostly stopped obsessing about micrometeorites and um <laughs> where are you putting the bulk of your time now into i guess what comes next what are you dreaming about and and hoping for as we as everything moves forward or what is the the focus of your energy? Um, so a couple things. I mean, one is sort of capturing lessons learned um, because, you know, one of the things I'm really realizing is uh, a lot of the people who worked on JWST, you know, people are retiring. Not everyone's going to be around for the next one. It's been 20 so years. Making, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, you know, so so part of it is capturing lessons learned. But, you know, uh, personally, I, I like to think about I really like building telescopes. I don't, you know, um, so so I'm already thinking about the next one and taking the lessons learned from the things we're talking about, from stability to pointing to micrometeorites, you know, and updating the architectures that we've been thinking about um, and 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 making use of those things. And one of the one of the this may surprise you a little bit, but one of the things I'm actually a lot of attention to it. I was just at the AIAA this week, which is a, a pretty interesting conference, but it, it tends to be more focused on, you know, the lunar architecture, lunar and, you know, commercial and human programs. But I'm really interested in thinking about designing the next telescope to be serviceable, mm -hmm. um, you know, the way Hubble was, but at L2. Wow. And I, I have That'd to cool. tell you, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I spent a lot of time this week talking with companies that are doing the software for robotics and building robots and looking at the, uh, you know, the infrastructure that it, people are envisioning for Gateway. And my mind was racing about what all this implies for the possibility of uh, being able to make a serviceable telescope at L2, you know, without, you know, planning it truly from the beginning. and in particular, the scientific instruments. Um, I really mm -hmm. think, you know, JWST, we, you know, a lot of people ask this question. I don't think they really ever understood just, you know, we were really mass constrained. 
and volume constraint. But really, you know, we lightweighted stuff year after year just to get in the box. So we, you know, and it takes mass to um, to to make something serviceable. And we were cryo, right? Which is a really difficult problem. People don't appreciate. How do you take an instrument out that's fifty Kelvin? You know, NICMOS was the one instrument on Hubble that was cool, but it had this doer with like. 70 layers of MLI on it or whatever, you know, 70 layer MLI and even NICMOS had its issues with it. It's, it's a hard problem to build a warm instrument with something cryo inside. And so, um, but, but, but this next telescope doesn't need to be a cryo, isn't cryo. So it's, it really lends itself to being serviceable. The whole field of high contrast lends itself to serviceability in terms of how difficult it is. And so I've really, I'm actually thinking architecturally more and more about that and making sure that we, we influence the architecture of the groups developing the infrastructure and at the same time, think about our observatory so that we have the potential to take advantage. And by the way, there's also these big rockets that are really exciting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, yeah. You know, the, the Starship and, you know, SLS, they're all about to launch. Um, and there's, believe it or not, there are new companies even talking about building large rockets. I was really excited to meet people doing that. So, you know, taking advantage of all that size and mass, and one of the ways is to build it, things that are serviceable and use a little mass for that. And so that that's where my time is starting to transition to is the next one, but from a lessons learned and an architecture perspective. The, the, the idea that that I found really exciting, um, someone at NASA is working on this idea for for on orbit construction of the telescope, similar to what happened with the International Space Station, with the what's going to happen with the Lunar Gateway, that you could send the main hub and then send the bits and pieces of the telescope up, and the hub is robotic arms and just starts attaching and bolting on the various pieces, and then you're not mass constrained and you're not size constrained. You can just keep extending your telescope as you as you go and also then the servicing sort of becomes a part of the puzzle as well do you do you think that that jwst was probably like the large the last large single launch telescope you know uh i don't think so honestly um i i think i'm really interested in assembly as well and i think one of the reasons, one of the advantages of making the next one serviceable is by learning how to do things at L2, like semi-autonomous robotics at L2 and being able to stage things along the way, we are building the roadmap to be able to assemble. But where assembly really becomes important is when things are too big to do a relatively simple unfolding. I mean, yeah, it looks complicated to unfold, JWST, but at the end of the day, every deployment worked. And especially if you take away the sunshield part of it, um, you know, they're pretty straightforward, you know, latches and hinges kind of stuff. And since what the decadal recommended was things that are more JWST size, and we have a bigger rocket with more mass, I think it's going to be really hard to make the argument for assembly for this next one or two telescopes. But I think the ones after that are where you're really going to want to do it and i think that's one of the reasons we want to think about next telescope though in the context of where we're going not just for servicing but also keeping the scalable nature of things you know one of the beauties of the jbst architecture is it's scalable you can add rings etc and so if we 
So, you know, and then we add in the servicing. I could see the long-term thing being assembly. And I think really after this next, uh, op, you know, optical UV telescope, um, what will ultimately come will be an assembled telescope that's 15 to 20 meters. Yeah. That, you know, that's the real one. <laughs> yeah. That's the one we really want to do. Uh, that was actually the big, you know, Louvoir A was a 15 meter. Um, but it, but I'll tell you, that was really, really sporty to do that uh, as a deployment. And, and I can I, imagine at this point yeah. with the budget and the timeline with JWST to then say, and now we want to make something that's bigger and introduce a mountain of new technical risk. Yeah. I'm sure some people were going like, let's settle down. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, it, it's always a question uh, – it's almost always a question of what's the most cost effective way to do the science. Um, and I don't, you know, the, and I just don't see how it's likely, I mean, I, listen, we always should stay open-minded and, you know, maybe some, you know, company with, you know, a trillionaire behind it says, Hey, we'll assemble it for free for you. You just never know. Yeah. But right. But, but, but like the guy who bought that bird company, he could, that Elon Musk can, uh, oh, can, okay. can launch yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. it's, uh, so, so you always stay open-minded, but I, I think, you know, when you, when you break it down financially, which is, you know, it's always about cost per, you know, science per cost. I think it's going to prove that deploying, you know, deployments are going to be the way to go. And you, let's, let's not have something quite as complex as the sun shield. I mean, the JWST sun shield, what really made it complex was, you know, there are five layers and they, if you look at them closely, you know, you just look at, you just see five layers the size of a tennis court, but those layers have, there's a very particular surface shape to them. And we had, it's a tension system and, and each layer has to have a separation from the next one to get the thermal. And, you know, it kind of gets larger as you go farther out and you can't have certain ripples. It was very complex because of the cryo aspect of things. Mm. Believe it or not, you know, like for the Louvoir architecture where we had the sunshade, we were literally just talking about a simple blanket. And it <laughs> right. was going to be, just, it didn't even umbrella, need to be tensioned. Get yeah, the sun off the telescope. Yeah. Yeah. And and that would have been a, a much lower risk thing. And so, you know, so I think, you know, when people talk about the deployment complexity at JWST, it was really mostly because of the sunshield and mostly because of the cryothermal challenges of it. And, and so, so do other wavelengths, like if you're in the visible light, is, does that, is that more forgiving of, of the instrumentation of the telescope alignment? Or do you think those challenges are still front and center if you're going to go like the, the heat issues are less important and the, yes. the thermal changes to the mirrors are less important? Well, well, okay, so you don't need to cool the mirror to 50 Kelvin. But the real key to the, the real hard nut, so like cryo is the hard nut for JWST. The hard nut on the next one is what they call contrast. It's the fact that the bright star we want to block relative to the Earth at these long distances is about a, a, a 10 to the 10th ratio. Right, the 10 billion. Yes, 10 billion to one. Brightness. And, and what we need is something that's stable to a factor of 10 better than that. So we need, we call it contrastability that's 10 to the 11th, okay? And so now you say, well, how does that ripple into how stable things are? The primary mirror, you know, there are two ways to do that. There, there, one group 
proposed a, a sunshade. The Habex team had both the sunshade and a coronagraph. The Luvar team just had a coronagraph. But if we if we just focus on the coronagraph, which is internal and the star shade would be very far away and have to be very large. So let's just focus on the chronograph. The chronograph in that approach, the mirror has to be literally be stable to 10 picometers RMS, root mean square, over its surface over some amount of time. Now that amount of time we used to think was 10 minutes. Now people are proposing ways that it might only be a few seconds. But so that mirror can't have ripples in it of on that on on those kinds of orders and that means thermally it needs to be very stable and so if we start coming if we are going to put it in a baffle this is a lot of what we've been thinking about is if you do put a baffle can you get the you know how do you get the mirror stable enough with a baffle with the sunshade it was actually very it was beautiful because we kept the sun we blocked the sun with the sunshade and so no matter where we looked, we saw the exact same thermal environment or almost exact same but when you have a baffle, as you slew around, the baffle gets hit by the sun and changes temperature. And so the, so now we're probably going to have to thermally control the baffle or have a more elaborate baffle. So, so that's actually going to be, I think, the architectural challenge for the next one. That's the kind of stuff we're thinking about is what's the most optimal way to achieve thermal stability. So we don't need cryo. We're not counting milliwatts of parasitics, but we need stability. And hmm. it turns out we can get there. Um, and actually, we have some really clever ways that we're thinking about. And that's that's what makes it fun. And that's 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 what we're starting to think about. But it is nice to to take one problem at a time, try to try to minimize the technical risk that you're injecting into the whole system, as opposed to trying to go bigger and trying to solve these problems at a at that fundamental level. That would feel like a lot to take on. That would feel like like shades of of JWST development, where you're like, you want to do yeah. this and do that. Yeah, exactly. And you know, the argument with assembly sometimes is, well, it reduces risk because if you have a problem, you can solve the problem and before you move on. As opposed to with JWST, it's like you had to be highly reliable. Um, I will tell you this though, having lived through JWST. I, I have grown in my confidence in our ability to build deployables because we did things differently on JWST in terms of the audits and the inspections and the thinking, you know, of details, attention to detail in that area. And I think if that's one of the key lessons learned is when you do deployables, if we follow these processes we developed for JWST, they were unique, by the way. I, I've never seen a program done the level of inspections and audits and you know independent inspections at those during the final stowing etc i think if you follow that process we know now we now have you know okay, okay try not to do something quite as complex as essential if you don't have to but if there's some deployable it, it doesn't worry me as much as it used to because i feel like we've kind of demonstrated that as long as you pay attention to the details that's feasible Whereas, okay, assembly, yeah, maybe you could fix it if it's broken. But now you have all these new things like the inter the real thing is the interfaces. You know, if you're trying to achieve a millikelvin stability and put two things together, you know, what is the interface that achieves millikelvin stability and dynamic stability and kinematic stability? So so assembly isn't gonna be an easy thing, and it should be it should be very careful where you do it. And like you say, it's about complexity.
Now, do you, where do you think on the value of exploring dumber telescopes that are bigger? Uh, there's been a lot of really interesting ideas like, um, like rotating, uh, liquids in space that you can harden into the shape of a mirror. Ones where you, you combine the light from multiple fairly simplistic telescopes that over time, as you add more and more telescopes to the formation, you're getting the equivalent of a surface area of a vastly larger telescope. But the, the price you pay is you don't get that. You're definitely not getting your picometer stability across the mirror interface. You're just going to have a giant, you can, but you may have a mirror that is hundreds of meters across. Do you, do you think there's value in, in going that direction? Or do you think keeping it engineeringly tight is the, is the better approach? You know, I think you have to look, so each of these have their unique scientific objectives. And from the science comes, you know, the design, the designs that work. So, you know, if it's far infrared, where you're more tolerant on the surface, but you still need the aperture for signal, you know, what's the right strategy there? There might be a little bit of room for a little creativity, but it's not going to be the stuff like liquid mirrors. I mean, you know, most of the people who propose these crazy ideas have never built a space telescope and and they're only solving one little slice of the problem. Right. And then as soon as you go to repoint the telescope or you want to work over a large band pass or you need dynamic stability, whatever it is, that's their technology falls apart. Right. Can I make um, a big parabola is the question they're trying to answer. Yeah. Now, so I actually think what you said is right, is that we stick with the engineering tightness, but where I really think as we get bigger, the really I look at what SpaceX did with economies of scale. You know, I'm, I, I really think that the genius of of SpaceX is they figured out how to make the same thing over and over and over like automobiles cheaply. And it's it's relatively simple, but it's they're using economies of scale all the way to the, the extent of 3D printing parts and how they assemble things, you know, and then you get into process control. I think we need to eventually turn telescopes into that. So I could imagine, and and by the way, the ground telescopes, you know, look at these ELTs that Europe's doing. I mean, Rios has this factory that's completely automated that makes segmented mirrors. I don't know if you knew that. It, they take the mirror, they do the metrology, they bring it over to the thing that does the polishing, they bring it over to the metrology with robots, all autonomous. Mm -hmm. Imagine you were doing that for a 20 or 30 meter space telescope. You know that same sort of thing, or so or you launched twenty space telescopes that are roughly the size of Hubble, that cost you only if say a few hundred million dollars to to launch, and you give a lot of more time to a lot of astronomers. Yeah, you could do that, but it it and this is where I come back to the science. What science are you achieving with separate telescopes? Because you remember diffraction is a it's wavelength divided by diameter, and when they're individual telescopes you get collecting area but you don't get the diameter you don't get the diff you don't get the resolution mm -hmm. now you can get the resolution if you do interferometry where you take separate apertures and then you combine them like a radio telescope does with a local oscillator and um, we actually built in an, uh, what we call a wide field imaging interferometry test that it got her at one point I was very interested in this and the place that makes the most sense is in the far infrared because in the far infrared the longest wavelengths that's where the resolution is really a challenge. And so you really benefit from by being really large. 
Right. We actually, and you have more give and play yeah. in trying to line up your wavelengths as well. Because yeah. the wavelengths just yeah. are so large. I mean, the Event Horizon Telescope does it all after the fact in radio waves. Yes. Now, so my other little side thing, I work on a lot of these. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. This is what I want to hear. This, these, this yeah, is yeah. the good stuff. But here's yeah. the one that's really going to blow you away. So now I get to like the, the yeah. end of the line. The really end of the line is, so Event Horizon uses correlation after the fact, time-based correlation to make their images. But what you really want to do is do interferometry from things that are as far apart, you know, on opposite sides of the planet. You know, I've got a ground telescope here and a ground telescope here, or eventually maybe a space telescope that are really far apart. And and people are now proposing ways to do that using quantum networks, where you capture the quantum states of the photons, you send the information through a quantum network, and then you do the quantum Fourier transforms at a local place after the fact. And Believe it or not, people believe this is possible. It, it It's going to need a quantum network infrastructure, which right. is yet another thing I've been thinking about for other reasons. Right. But well, hold really on. Let me just let me yeah. just let that idea sink in for people's brains. Okay. Right. That the problem, like the, the big problem with interferometry of visible light telescopes is that you've got to align the wavelengths up perfectly in real time because you can't do it after the fact the way you do with with radio telescopes but there has been this technology and I've I've reported on this and it's that that you can you can as that using the quantum and I'm not exactly the exact technology on this but essentially you can do the same thing without having that for them to be so you you point one telescope on earth at a target you point one telescope in space at a target you record for an hour you then blend them at the quantum level or using that as a checksum to line up your wavelengths again and you pull that data out and now you have an interferometer with the distance of the of the baseline. yeah and 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 what you're really lining up is the phase yeah the phase you know if you think of an electric you know a sinusoidal electromagnetic wave it's the phase of that that you have to main you have to maintain phase in order to create an image that's why it's diff that's why if you have separate telescopes right um that are far apart from each other they you know the reason why you can't just combine the data together and make an image is because you don't have the phase information and you know typically when we take an image like on james webb we 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 create an image on a detector that detector creates a two-dimensional pattern that's just pure intensity there's no phase information and so the whole thing about interferometry is to you know you have these separate apertures is to bring them together in a way that maintains phase so that you can line up those electric fields so because otherwise what happens is you get wrapped you, you know things become incoherent and you don't get an image all right now and before so i distracted you you're about yeah. to blow my mind so please continue on with with, with okay. what's next so 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 you can build an interferometer where you maintain phase by using metrology, like lasers that go shooting across and use the laser to measure the phase and then you collect and make the images. That was the TPFI, Terrestrial Planet Finder Imager. We had proposals for far infrared to do the same thing. And there were even proposals to Decadal to do that. That's one strategy. And, and there are challenges in doing that both in the metrology is very complicated and there's a lot of losses in those systems. The real problem is a lot of diffraction losses as you propagate a smaller beam across. Right. Due and to that's the how LISA is going to work as well to detect gravitational waves. 
Yes, Lisa is going to do that. But Lisa, remember, they're just they just got these three proof masses, and they're just measuring that you know as 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 the as the uh, gravity gravitational waves or gravity affects the proof masses, and they move around the inter the the one dimensional interferometer is all they're measuring. Yeah, and they're and they're closing phase by having a triangle. So how do um, we but not have lasers? So this is what's mind blowing, and this is what like. You know, I envision we we should be working towards a future, um, which is when you when you have these separate collectors. If I don't just create an image at the collector, but I, you could think of it as capturing the quantum information. There's more information in a photon than what we typically capture. We capture intensity, right? right. But there's quantum information in that photon. Um, there's there's polarization, there's phase, there's a, and and there's there is quantum physics that says you can capture more information using quantum methods. And for example, you know, even like if you look at a quantum computer, and granted, these things are complicated. And most of these are done with cryogenics using uh, impurities and diamonds. But what they do is they and they do it at the single photon level. So you, this is not something you're going to want to do with a bright source. But if you have a single photon, I can capture its quantum information by doing what's called a Bell state measurement. Bell state measurement is a way to capture quantum information. The only the only real negative of this approach is it's it typically is very monochromatic, meaning I can design something that works at one wavelength, but but doesn't work over many wavelengths. Now to, to do to but what you can do is you can multiply. So, you know, eventually the idea is that people can make it a bunch of these. They're almost like local oscillators, like we use in radio telescopes that capture the quantum state. And then if you capture the quantum state, you have a separate network that can teleport that quantum state. And what that means is I've got a quantum state here and I can teleport that quantum state here and do the same from another collector. I collect all those quantum states, I can then combine them. But but what's truly remarkable, and this is the thing that really blows my mind, is in a normal interferometer, if I have, you know, A, B, and C collectors, I have to I have to interfere A and B, I have to interfere A and C, and I have to interfere B and B and C, and then put all that together. So it's a very linear, and if I have lots of collectors, it takes a lot of computation. With quantum, because quantum states are not binary, they're not zeros and ones, but they're two to the n power for each state. I can there's something called a quantum Fourier transform, which is the whole basis of quantum computing that could take these quantum information and all at once do the Fourier transform like that. Right. Instantaneously, yeah. Instantaneously. So so can you imagine like every ground telescope on the earth is connected through a ground network? They teleport their quantum states to the central place where I can do a quantum Fourier transform and all of a sudden I've got the spatial resolution of D being the separation from one ground, you know, thousands of kilometers apart. So, you and know, you've got more information than just the intensity. You've got the full quantum information of all the photons that have fallen on the detector, yes. which has the phase and which has phase plus even more information right. than phase. You know? Yeah. I can yeah. capture so polarization and some other stuff. So you've got and a telescope now, the size of earth with, yeah. with, with the ability to record far more information. And okay, and now through economies of scale, I can build segmented telescopes that are 20 meters big. 
and I can put them in space where I can make them, you know, very stable and then have these hundreds of thousands, you know, a thousand kilometers apart connected through a quantum network. What can I do with that? I can make a high definition picture of the earth. And so, so, so people say like, how are we going to ultimately, you know, cause do you mean you this earth Lord, or another earth? Other Earths. Okay, sorry, other yeah, yeah, yeah. Earth, I can feel Earth, like producing Earth, a high definition. I could take one right Earth, now, but, but yeah, no, no. I mean, Earth like ten parsecs yeah. away. I mean, like like an Earth around another star. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, it's, it actually turns out, you know, people that proposed years ago this Life Finder and all that, where they were where they wanted to create an interferometer that did that. So they had these huge collecting mirrors that would be, you know, I don't remember how many kilometers away from each other. And then you'd interfere them together. But as I mentioned, interference has this diffraction loss and all these other complications. But if I use quantum networking to combine them now, so combine big apertures with quantum networking, yeah. that's really, right. if you ask me where we're going in 200 years or whatever, yeah, yeah, yeah. 100 years, yeah. I think, and so that I'm always thinking in terms of where do we want to get right. to, because you'll want to be thinking and so that's the real I, I think that's a really interesting vision and like unlike the idea of the solar gravitational lens where you have to put your telescope out a thousand au from earth and you only get one target this is a telescope that that's that powerful that can be tasked at many different targets you just have to point the satellites in different directions and and at whatever you want so yes all yeah, targets you, become available to this network yes exactly and, and I think it. I think quantum networking will start with ground telescopes. We'll start with ground telescopes because um, quantum networking will be done for other reasons for connecting quantum computers. The ground telescopes will make use of that, um, and then they'll be able to connect. And they'll connect themselves. And 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 there are sort of even smaller steps along the way that they can do that are maybe not as big. And so I think actually the ground telescope, because, you know, if you think about it for ground telescopes, what do you do after you build the 30 meter class telescope? You know, um, it's not very practical to build a 100 meter telescope on the ground. It, you, you, these civil engineering problems are pretty hard. Um, but the thing you can do is this. And so I've actually talked to ground telescope people and there's some interest in this stuff, both in, you know, first, maybe a little more in interferometry because it's a little nearer term. But they're definitely interested in in potentially making use of quantum networking, and there are people from ground yeah. telescopes that are I, looking at doing demonstrations. I mean, I, I I wrote a story on this, but I don't think it really sunk into me what this means. And yeah. now now I I'm obsessed, and I can see why you're obsessed. I, this now yeah, is rent I'm free a, in my brain. Yeah. So I and you know I'm I'm so obsessed that I even spent a year and a half helping architect. The first quantum networking demonstrations because and because you, you pretty much have if you want to do quantum networking over long distances on earth space is the place to do it yeah um you know we you know we i actually left nasa for a year worked at an undersea fiber optics company and i got and uh you know we were doing ramon amplification and we were trying to connect you know asia to north north america with undersea fiber optics well that's one way to, and you have, you have amplifiers under the ground every, you know, 100 kilometers or whatever it is that amplify this signal. Well, there's a really big difference between quantum and laser com or fiber optics, which is you can't amplify a quantum signal. 
you can't have an amplifier. It's all single photon. Right. And because it's single photon, if you put it in a fiber, it's very low rates. And so quantum networking in fibers doesn't go very far. You might be able to do, you know, uh, some number of kilometers, 100 kilometers, 1,500 kilometers. But if you really want to go across, you know, the ocean or you want to go across the country, you got the best way to do that is actually using space platforms. So, so I've been thinking about ways to build quantum networks that would connect quantum computers. And, and, and it, it enables a couple things. One is this, what we're talking about, which is quantum telescopes that are connected. Um, but it also does some amazing, you know, there's a whole separate topic of quantum computing and where we're going there. And I think quantum computing is going to do more for science than anything in my lifetime because quantum computers can model physics in ways that we've never been able to, because physics is fundamentally quantum. That was what Richard Feynman pointed out to people. And so once these quantum computers exist, people are going to be modeling, they're going to be doing computational fluid dynamics with them, and then they're going to want to connect them, and they're going to need this quantum network. So we're going to do that, and then the ground telescope people are going to use that. And so that's huh. that's what they see happening. That's really cool. Yeah. Wow. It's a, it's a fascinating glimpse into the future. And I, I really hope that we do get that megapixel resolution of other earths. It'll be yeah. uh, pretty astonishing for us to be able to have that level of view into out into the universe. And it, you know, it kind of makes you wonder, are the aliens looking at us with that level of resolution? They must be if the, you know, if they're advanced, but Lee, it's been a pleasure talking with you. I know you're busy. You've got a telescope to keep an eye on, but, but also new telescopes to plan and new technologies to harness. So what is the best way if people want to keep track of the work that you're doing? How should they follow this? Um, that's a great question because you know, the JWST stuff we put out on the blogs. Yeah. So I mean, definitely follow the JWST blog. For the new stuff, you know, a lot of it we report on in conferences, um, the SBAE conferences. Um, you know, if you look at, I gave a, I gave a couple papers actually in Montreal in July, and I think it was June. Um, one on JWST results and one on work we're doing for ultra stable telescopes. And so, you know, you can read the papers. Right. That's right. So search for your name in in wherever papers are yeah. distributed. Wonderful. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Lee. Pleasure to talk to you. Yeah. Uh, let me know yeah, when me you've too. got that quantum telescope operating. <laughs> well, or, or at least, uh, you know, the first steps along the way. I will let yeah. you know. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. All right. Take okay. care. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. You can also get even more space news in my weekly email newsletter. I send it out every Friday to more than 55,000 people. I write every word. There's no ads, and it's absolutely free. Subscribe at universetoday.com slash newsletter. You can also subscribe to the Universe Today podcast. There you can find an audio version of all of our news, interviews, and Q&As, as well as exclusive content. Subscribe at universetoday.com slash podcast, or search for Universe Today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. A huge thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon and helps us stay independent. Thanks to all the interplanetary researchers, the interstellar adventurers, and the galaxy wanderers. And a special thanks to Josh Schultz and Andrew M. Gross who support us at the Master of the Universe level. All your support means the universe to us.